Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hits lecture series on Mandible and everything that goes along with it. Hannah, why don't you get us started on mandible? Okay, so we'll get started with some anatomy. The medullary branch of the inferior alveolar artery supplies the condylar head. And then for maxillary alveolar sensation, you will do a nasopalatine nerve block uh, to block the palate and the anterior superior alveolar nerve block blocks the anterior teeth and the mucosa. The middle and posterior superior alveolar nerves from the infraorbital nerve innervates bicuspids to the molars. The inferior alveolar nerve supplies the lip and chin, and this can be damaged in mandibular fractures and mainly causes a neuropraxia. This can be found in the bony canal of the mandible and the body of the mandible. It travels proximal to the angle through the body bicuspid teeth and emerges as the mental nerve. The buccal mucosa is also supplied by the trigeminal nerve. And now we'll talk about some of the muscles. So the medial pterygoid will exert upward medial and forward traction on the mandible and inserts on the medial ramus and angle. The lateral pterygoid has two heads and it's the only muscle that inserts directly on the mandibular condyle. And it acts to open the mandible and allows motion of the articular disc. Condyle fractures can displace medially due to the pull of the lateral pterygoid. The masseter inserts on the medial and lateral surfaces of the lower border of the zygomatic arch and anterior lateral surface of the mandibular ramus, and it works to elevate the mandible. The temporalis inserts on the coronoid and ramus and elevates and retracts the mandible, and this can cause loss of facial height. In terms of the distractive forces on the mandible, anteriorly, it's the geniohyoid, genioglossus, mylohyoid, and anterior digastrict, and these cause posterior and downward movement of the mandible. There are rotational forces when only one fracture pattern is present. Side-to-side contractions of medial and lateral pterygoids produce side-to-side chewing movements of the mandible, and simultaneous action of all four muscles results in protrusion of the mandible. And again, the masseter and temporalis work to elevate the mandible. The permanent first molars are used to determine the state of dental occlusion, and the central incisors are used to determine overjet. So class one occlusion is mesiobuccal cusp of the maxillary lying in the buccal groove, In class two, you have mesiobuccal cusp lying anterior, and in class three, they lie posterior. For overjet, and this is sagittal plane anterior, this refers to the distance between the incisal aspect of the maxillary incisors to the mandibular incisors. When the upper central incisor lies anterior, this is overjet. Overbite vertical is one in which the upper central incisors overrides the lower central incisors. The mandibular space is located inferior lateral to the mylohyoid muscles and superior to the hyoid bone. The contents include the submandibular gland, lymph nodes, facial vein and artery, and the inferior loop of the hypoglossal nerve. 
typically involves infections of second and third mandibular molars, and anterior to this is the sublingual space. Rachel, do you want to pick up here and go through some of the functions? Sure. Thanks, Hannah. So we'll talk a little bit about mandibular opening, which we've been tested on. Um, just remember that the articular disc separates the upper and lower joint spaces and at rest and during rotation. So at intermediate opening, the condyles in the lower joint space, that's from one to two centimeters. And it primarily undergoes rotation from two to three centimeters. The condyle is in the upper and lower joint spaces, and it's still undergoing rotation. And then in the final three to five centimeters of maximal opening, the condyle undergoes translation and the condyle will then move to the upper joint space. So remember that four to five centimeters is the maximal incisal opening. There's a couple of tumors. I know we went over the, in their head and neck tumors, but mandibular tumors to know the first one is called an aneurysmal bone cyst. It is made of multinucleated giant cells. It presents as a pseudocyst and treatment is resection and curatage. Amyloblastoma is a little different. This presents as a painless enlarging mass in the mandible or maxilla. And you can see a multilocular lucency with preservation of the cortex on a panorex. And remember you need wide local excision or wide resection with this and reconstruction. For pediatric considerations, sometimes the patients will undergo distraction if they have mandibular hypoplasia. The success on distraction is most dependent on stable fixation. So if you're unstable, it'll lead to too much motion at that site in a fibrous union. There are different periods that, that you'll undergo. So you'll first undergo your osteotomies. The patient then undergoes a lag period, which is the time prior to when distraction is begun. And that varies from surgeon to surgeon. The distraction period is generally one millimeters a day, but infants can undergo two millimeters a day. Any less than that, you carry a risk for premature consolidation. And then your consolidation phase is typically about two weeks after you complete distraction. And remember when you're putting on your distractors that a supra periosteal dissection is very important to maintain blood supply. Abnormalities in mandibular growth are most associated with condyle fractures or condylar hypoplasia because that is the primary growth center. It contributes to vertical growth. And like we were talking about mandibular fractures in children, symphysial fractures, body fractures, angle fractures, if they're displaced, they can undergo ORIF. Um, if you have a condylar fracture, these typically are not fixed as they are highly vascularized sponges that are the growth center. So you want to treat with two weeks of MMF. And then remember to use absorbable plates and screws when you're fixating a pediatric mandibular fracture as the mandible is still expected to grow. And you want to be careful of the developing tooth buds as well. Tooth buds can be injured, like I said, when placing MMF, and you just want to pay attention to a patient and mixed dentition, what should be erupting. So we had a question about an 11 year old pediatric patient that was undergoing ORIF and the answer with through which tooth could be injured was the canine because that erupts around age 11. So it could just vary, go over the ages at which the teeth erupt, which we talked about in our head and neck anatomy lecture. And then if you do place titanium plates, remember to remove those at two to three months to avoid growth disturbances in children. All right, Hannah, why don't you take us through general trauma for mandibular fractures and treatment for each? Okay. And remember that when we talk about trauma, age 16 counts as skeletal maturity. So for concomitant spinal injuries, these occur in four to 10% of the time when you have a, a mandible fracture. A chest injury or a ramus condyle unit fracture, independent risk factors for a concomitant spine injury. The parasymphysis, the anterior muscles include the geniohyoid, genioglossus, mylohyoid, and digastric muscles, and they will displace a parasymphyseal fracture downward, posteriorly, and medially. 
they often we use the vestibular approach for ORIF, and there is a risk of mental nerve injury below the second premolar near the mental foramen, and this gives sensation to the skin and mucosa of the lower lip, chin, and facial gingiva of the anterior teeth. So body fractures are typically treated with ORIF as well, and displacement can cause ipsilateral numbness via injury to the inferior alveolar nerve. Angle fractures, these are the highest rate of fractures in adults, and displacement can cause ipsilateral numbness via injury again to the inferior alveolar nerve. Angle fractures can also cause foreshortening, which leads to a posterior open bite on the contralateral side. And again, these are treated with ORIF. Coronoid fractures, if they are non-displaced, can be treated with MMF for two weeks. And if they are displaced with obstruction of mandibular motion, this requires a coronoidectomy. For condyle fractures, often we use a retromandibular incision, and this is the safest exposure for some mandibular fractures. It allows access to the coronoid notch, the angle, and subcondylar fractures. A preauricular approach carries risk of injury to the facial nerve, and it's not good for low fractures like a low subcondylar fracture. So for condylar fractures, you can have loss of posterior ramus height with premature contact of the maxillary and mandibular molars and a contralateral open bite. You also have an ipsilateral upward cant and a decreased incisal opening. The chin point will be deviated towards the side of the lesion due to unopposed action of the lateral pterygoid on the contralateral side. So in terms of operative indications for pediatrics, if there is displacement into the middle cranial fossa with inability to obtain adequate dental occlusion by closed reduction, you'll need to take uh, the child to surgery. Also, if there's lateral extracapsular displacement or if there's invasion of a foreign body. Otherwise, if they're amenably displaced, you can just put the patient in MMF for two weeks. And this is the most common fracture pattern seen in children. So with bilateral condylar fractures, you'll have an anterior open bite and premature contact of the mandibular maxillary molars posteriorly, a decrease in posterior height, facial swelling, and preauricular pain. Intracapsular fractures are treated with MMF for two weeks. Comminuted condylar fractures carry the risk of TMJ dysfunction, which again is clicking, locking, pain, and trismus, and this can lead to ankylosis of the joint. Condylar neck fractures. Displacement is caused by the lateral pterygoid again. This is the only muscle that inserts on the mandibular condyle, which acts to open the mandible. The other head inserts on the TMJ and contributes to the motion of the articular disc. Unopposed forces of the muscle will pull the head medially, and the medial pterygoid attaches to the mandibular angle and ramus. And finally, for subcondylar fractures, these are traditionally treated with closed reduction MMF, although this is heavily debated, and there is lower risk of ankylosis than with condylar head fractures. You spend longer time in MMF with subcondylar fractures. So non-displaced fractures can be put in MMF for four to six weeks, followed by two to three weeks of elastics. And this is the same with bilateral fractures. So if the fracture is displaced, you'll perform ORIF. But because this is so heavily debated, often the, the question choices will not have closed reduction MMF and ORIF as both options. So it's one or the other. Hannah, we did have a question uh, a couple years ago where the patient had a displaced subcondylar fracture, and it was a little tricky because the answer choices said MMF, and then the other one was open reduction internal fixation, and the answer was ORIF because the MMF did not include a closed reduction. 
we will briefly talk about edentulous patients. So you can use custom fabricated intraoral splints or dentures for rigid MMF in order to reestablish occlusion. Mandibular atrophy can make it difficult to achieve appropriate reduction, and ORIF is necessary to provide long-term stability and accurate restoration of previous anatomy. And this is due to their poor osteogenic capabilities. In severely comminuted fractures of the mandible, the blood supply comes from the periosteum. And in long flat bones of the facial skeleton, the nutrient arteries and periosteal arteries are the blood supply. In patients who have fractures of the midface and the condylar neck, you perform ORIF of the condylar fractures first, followed by ORIF of the midface fractures. And it's the only appropriate way for reestablishing height of the posterior face. And then for indications for removal of teeth, if there are fractures in the root of the tooth, if there's severe loosening of the tooth with periodontal disease, if there is extensive periodontal injury in a broken alveolar wall, or displacement of the teeth from the alveolar socket, it's uh, indicated to remove the tooth. All right. Rachel, do you want to take us through some fixation principles? Sure. Thanks, Hannah. That was a great review. So there are several fixation principles which were tested on for mandibular fractures. The most famous one is Champy's principle. And this is a, basically a tension band construct. So it is the placement of mini plates along lines of tension in the mandible at the side of the fracture and anchored with monocortical screws. And remember, we use monocortical screws because of the inferior alveolar nerve and the bony canal. Anterior to the canine, two mini plates are needed to control the rotational forces of the genial and digastric muscles, but posterior, you just need one and you place this along the oblique ridge. And so basically what this construct does is it takes the areas of tension on the mandible, you plate them and with movement of the mandible, it creates a compressive force. Load bearing plates can be accomplished with reconstruction plates and locking screws and indications for these are comminuted fractures, segmental defects, atrophic and edentulous mandibles. And a locking plate will decrease postoperative malocclusion after a comminuted fracture of the mandible. It remember does not require intimate contact with the bone because the screws lock to the plate. There is less cortical compression, less blood disruption, less bone resorption, more difficulty contouring. Load sharing is described as a frictional sharing between the ends of the bone and the construct. And this includes lag screws, champy plates at remember placed at the oblique ridge compression plates, simple screws, and MMF. And then something to talk about that we see a lot of times in dynamic compression plates are this is the spherical gliding principle. And this principle is also important in mandibular fractures, but basically you'll place one screw close to the fracture or at your predetermined distance. And then you'll go on the other side of your fracture and you'll place the second screw eccentric or away. So if it has an oblong hole, you'll place it away from the fracture line. And this will cause compression of the fracture site as you tighten the screw. <laughs> so next we'll talk about osteoradionecrosis, which we're frequently tested on across all areas. But remember that you're at risk if you have doses of greater than 6,500 gray. And if you have dental caries, these are both known as risk factors for osteoradionecrosis. This phosphonate related osteonecrosis we typically see in the mandible, and this can present as pathologic fractures, pain intraorally. And you can see these with patients taking the bisphosphonates like alendronate, 
Stage one, you'll have exposed and necrotic bone, but otherwise asymptomatic. And you want to treat this with antiseptic mouthwashes and observation. Stage two, you'll have exposed and necrotic bone with signs of an infection. And you'll treat this with limited debridement, mouth rinses, and antibiotics. And then stage three, you'll have both of these plus a pathologic fracture, extra oral fistula or osteolysis extending to the inferior alveolar border. And this is what we see that requires surgical debridement and reconstruction. There are different kinds of complications from mandibular fractures. So remember if there is an infection, but the hardware is still stable, you'll treat this with an IND and antibiotics, and you will keep the hardware in place. If the hardware is unstable or loose, then that can be a sign of infection or osteomyelitis and the hardware needs to be removed at that point. These infections postoperatively are common in one third of patients. You need to remember to teach your patients oral hygiene. Any infected teeth should be removed. And then miscellaneous. So we were tested a couple of years ago on mandibular contouring surgery, and this is known as otherwise as mandibular angle reduction. And this, you can use a burr or an osteotome to decrease angular contours in a square face. And then last year we were tested on tooth roots, which I thought was rather unfair, but remember that the, the incisors canines and mandibular premolars have one root. The maxillary molars have three roots. And then the maxillary first premolars and mandibular molars, which were what we were tested on last year, have two roots. Yeah, that was a kind of a wild card question there. So I guess it's important to know if we have to take out teeth, but I hopefully we'll never have to do that. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for tuning in for Quick Hits Mandible. I hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for our next lecture. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.